Excuse me, I know this is, well, a bad time, but I just wanted to congratulate you and shake your hand. Oh, on what? Well, as I interpret what you're doing here, this is all a very complex discussion of uh, reality versus illusion, the perfect subject for the television medium. What do you mean, television? Oh, this is a television play. <laughs> what? You don't believe that? Of course not. I should have thought you'd want to. After all, there's only one other possible explanation. Which is? Hallucination. That you are altogether insane. Tell me more about the television part. Hi-ho, and welcome again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson. And as Muppets, my name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick. How is the world, Nick Jackson? That is an interesting and dangerous question. I don't think we have any news to talk about or anything like that. We're not really doing news or anything on the show yet. The clips for this episode were a lot of fun to watch, especially seeing some more of the non-Muppet aspects of what Jim did. We watched some weird stuff. Actually, we watched three things today, and only one of them had puppets. Yeah. Let's get started. Hey, Chad here. I'm both new and bad at this. What should have happened during the previous segment is I should have said, please check out our social media, at Lunatic Daring, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And go to lunaticdaring.com, where you will find our, our sources list, as well as a bunch of video links to help you get started if you want to watch along with us. Cool. Thanks. Won't happen again. In the mid-60s, the Muppets spent a lot of time on the road. Rolf's role on The Jimmy Dean Show was so popular that when Jimmy took the show on tour, Henson and Oz went with him. They played Vegas, Carnegie Hall, and even the Louisiana State Fair. It paid well. And there was a lot of fun to be had, but Jim didn't have any time to enjoy it. Starting in the spring of 1964, he used every moment he could spare to work on his new short film, shot with a used Bolex camera that he had bought in the 50s to teach himself animation. This nine-minute film, called Timepiece, would be written by Jim, shot by Jim, produced by Jim, directed by Jim, with music by Jim, and, most notably, it would star Jim. There would be no puppets there would be no script. While Timepiece was a personal and solo project, Henson would still recruit members of the Muppets gang to help him when he needed to. Frank Oz remembers that while they were in Vegas for a Jimmy Dean show, Jim dragged him out to the desert to grab a shot of Jim running down the road in convict stripes. In Manhattan, they snagged a few frames of him using a crosswalk dressed in a loincloth. Oz had to wear a gorilla costume while on a pogo stick, and... Somewhere along the way, they painted an elephant pink. Timepiece, originally called Time to Go, is a deceptively complicated piece, but what it's about is pretty cut and dry. Timepiece is about time and a man running, Jerry Jewell observed. Jim was always running from time. If you would have asked Jim Henson, as many probably did, if this film had anything to do with the sudden death of his brother at 23 and the resulting revelation that he, too, like all of us, was on a ticking clock, he would have denied it. He would tell you that his pieces start with ideas, visuals, or sounds, or a technical challenge. He would probably tell you that he just wanted to make something different, entertaining, funny, weird, and all of that may be true. 
But there are only four spoken lines of dialogue in timepiece. They are each just a single word, the same word, and they are all spoken by Henson. His face replacing Washington's on the dollar bill. His disembodied head on a serving tray, being shot out of the sky like Jack Skellington. And one last time, peeking out from a toilet bowl right before being flushed away. Each time Jim looks at the camera, and with a meek and plaintive voice that is clearly his own, he pleads, Help. So, uh, timepiece. Yeah. There's a lot packed into under 10 minutes. I had never seen this. I had never watched this until about a week ago. I heard about it after I, I read A Tale of Sand for the first time, because it's, like, like these are similar sort of, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, you'd call them the more artsy things that Jim wanted to do. And this is before... He started doing some of the secondary world fantasy stuff where he's just experimenting with the, the medium and the form. They say there's no script, there's no story to it, but you can still track a very clear progression of, I guess, his mental state. Because there's like a, a recurring theme of diverted paths of he starts out as a guy at work fantasizing about a co-worker and then he's married to the co-worker and he's wondering about another life he might have lived. The, the theme of it running out of time is already probably overstated, but the degree to which you see things sort of separate and split off as he fears lost time is something that's really, really effective given how short and how experimental the piece is. And funny. It's super funny. It premiered at the Museum of Modern Art on May 6th, 1965. They tried to get distributors to put it in theaters, but what are you going to do with a nine-minute film? It did end up running 18 months at the Paris Theater in New York City. I believe coupled with A Man and a Woman, a French film, that actually won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film that year. It's, it's, a, it's got no puppets, Nick. But it's still very Jim. And I think that there's something about this that does sort of beg the question, how much of what we loved about the Muppets was Jim and how much of it was the Muppets? But to see the other directions that he grew in a little bit. Because at this point in time... He's just in love with film. Like, he's in love with filming things and finding ways to integrate that film or animate certain aspects of it. And you see a lot of those visual effects when it's mapped to the, the drumbeat of whatever's going on that are very reminiscent of what we would eventually see on Sesame Street. Did you know this was nominated for an Oscar, by the way? I, I'd read about it. This was nominated for, it, it won a couple of awards, but it was nominated for Best Short Subject Live Action at the 1966 Oscars, and it lost to a French short called La Poulet. And according to Frank Oz, do you know which film Jim Henson voted for? La Poulet. La Poulet. <laughs> yeah, apparently Jim did voted against his own movie for the Oscar, but apparently he had a very good time at, mm. the, at the ceremony. You're going to do a better job than I am. It's hard to explain this film. I tend to get irritated when I hear people try to talk about the, the symbology or implications of the way that certain things are done. But it's, very, it's a very abstract film, so it's kind of hard to describe it without doing that. There is a narrative. I think it would be unfair to say there isn't a narrative. Mm -hmm. people, different people are going to take different things out of it. So if you're seeing someone go through the course of a day or maybe a couple of years or a lifetime... Everything doesn't necessarily have to mean something, but there's this there's this frantic energy that seems to be born of the fear of 
lost time or of time running out. There are so many different things that might apply or appeal, whether it's him learning how to fly toward the end of the piece or them seeing the belly dancer or him being very attracted to the secretary or... This is the horniest thing we've seen so far, right? That's a fair statement. This is probably the horniest gym we've seen at this point, at least. I mean, I know we're early on. But... Cube had its moments, but it, it wasn't quite as overt as this is. What I picked up in the film was uh, there, are, there are actually some kind of contemporary references in it that the dinner scene mm-hmm. is a straight up satire of Tony Richardson's 1963 adaptation of Tom Jones. I, I would, I didn't catch that at all. I mean, in this scene, they actually like regress to their cavemen selves almost, yeah. right? They're like, they're eating turkey legs and, you know, eating's very primal. She's got like a stick of celery and he's eating, I think, was it a steak? Yeah, and he's got a turkey leg at some point, like yeah. at the Ren Fair. And then there's that whole scene exchange with them just stamping the different forms. Yeah, I wrote that down. File, rush, conform, paid, sex, and damn. <laughs> That's where the words they got stamped. His job. <laughs> what is it? His job seems to be pushing a lever that makes rusty cans on a conveyor belt move one way and then making them move the other way. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if there's something I was missing about that, but... Yep, this is what I come in and do. I do this thing, and I do this thing, and I go home, and it doesn't mean anything to me. Mm. It's just a couple of rusty paint cans on a conveyor belt. I thought that was kind of cool. I got nothing on the pink elephant, though. Yeah, that's... I I mean, (laughs) this is pre-Dumbo, I'm assuming, so... Dumbo came out in 1941. Oh, wow, my Disney history is shot. So, okay, there's probably a pretty direct reference there, but... Even then, the the pink elephants in that were indicative of an altered mind state, weren't they? Yes, the pink elephants on parade. The one thing I did like about the elephant, oddly enough, this movie's full of uh, cool sounds. Mm -hmm. And the sound of them painting the elephant's tail, I liked. (laughs) There was like a little like flip sound. Mm -hmm. The sounds do most of the work. Like Jim's visual style is still very present. The pacing feels very right. But so much of that is driven by the soundtrack of this it it never really stops. It's a collage, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a collage of images and sound. It, it's funny because I had read about it and I thought, I actually thought it was going to be more abstract than it was, mm-hmm. oddly. More, you know, I studied film in college and so I've seen a lot of like old Soviet montage filmmaking mm-hmm. where it's all about the editing and, and this this image plus this image equals this image and they weren't as again i could definitely follow what he was saying or what he was not what he was saying what he was there's a very clear progression i don't think it's it's as obscure as it may seem on the surface Hmm. or as as obtuse as it may seem on the surface i I think that it's just would he say it was about these things i don't know probably (laughs) you know he was but he was pretty tight-lipped about that i think another big part of it too is when you hear about something that's more experimental or something that's more abstract it usually comes with the expectation that the audience has to do more work. Like you've got to be willing to either suspend disbelief in a certain way or make certain logical leaps. Intellectually engage. You have to intellectually engage with it. And you don't like, you should absolutely engage with timepiece, but you don't have to, you can enjoy it. It's kind of like a sketch from Sesame street, right? It's just purely entertaining as well. I wanted to talk about the striptease. uh, First of all, (laughs) because, uh, I mean, Jim Henson's showing us a striptease now. He does. She's got pasties on, so he yeah. does. You know, the shot of the peeling banana, though, a little on the nose. It was a little bit, but I think that that's something. Forgive any potential pretension. 
So the the concept of libido isn't exclusively sexual, right? There's yeah. this sort of lust for life aspect that I think Young described. And I think that that's a driving force for this entire thing. And yeah, certain aspects of it are sexual. We, we just discussed the stamps and the sound effects for while the secretary walked down the hall. But I don't, I think that that's part of a larger hunger, I guess. But what, 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 does, what do the dancing chickens have to do with it, though? Uh, I'm trying to find a tactful way to answer that. Given that we go starting in an office environment where he's, he feels particularly constrained to certain things that are more primal, there's, there's a sort of simplicity that comes with just thinking about the other thing, right? You're not worried about processes. You're not worried about anything else. You know that this is something that you find appealing. And because that's what you're drawn to, you might pursue as the crow flies. Aspects of this are probably not going to age as well as he might have hoped. But I, I think with that, I think that he was aiming at simplicity, right? As we're losing time, yeah. as we have all these different processes that we've got to observe and that we're beholden to, seeing a woman dancing on stage and thinking whatever Jim was thinking while he was watching that woman dance on stage was something that was relatively straightforward and simple. I like what you said there about simplicity. It is... It is a very kind of, in its own way, a streamlined vision of life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend four hours. We could probably talk about timepiece for like a long time, but we got a lot to talk about on the show and it is only nine minutes long. <laughs> but there are four lines of dialogue in the entire film and they're all the word help. Help. I mean, not to beat the same drum, but I do think that that still ties into the simplicity bit because whether it's his head in the toilet or him trying to fly or... I got written down here, shot down like Jack Skellington on Christmas Eve. That's what happens to him when he's, he's flying. He, 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 he takes off, he's flying, he's, he magically springs wings, and then everything on the ground, including a fire extinguisher mm-hmm. and a couple other things, like sh- shoot him out of the sky. It was very... Well, so, I mean, it was pretty clearly an Icarus illusion, but... Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, all right. But, Fine, if you want to get fancy with it. Well, no, 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 like there's... <laughs> Nothing against the skeleton. You, you, right? you go Icarus, I go Tim Burton. It's fine. Tim Burton's Icarus would probably be a really interesting movie. He would spend way too much money on it, and it would have Johnny Depp in it, and it would be a disaster. We're we're talking like '90s Tim Burton. Okay, that'd be fine. Right after Ed Wood, then we'll, yeah, we go. I I would just want Danny DeVito to play Daedalus. That would be my one request. <laughs> yeah, I just I was I was struck by the help. Help. I just wonder if that's him. Just literally, is that his despair? Is that his at at the at time or is is that his um his desire to slow things down like things are moving so fast help help probably but i i think there's also something else to so jim is someone who was very very expressive and very creative when he put on performances but he wasn't someone who would necessarily express a lot of what he thought interpersonally at least uh, according to the biographies he was a quiet man. He was known as a pretty, you know, a, a, a soft-spoken man. When you know, he didn't. Frank Oz said he never saw him like legitimately angry or yell at anybody. You know, he was a he was a fairly reserved guy. Which, from what we've read, he it looks like he got from his father. Um, it, it's, that's a very kind of midwestern kind of thing. So, if if he's someone who has a hard time articulating what might be going on in his head, say. He is still processing and grieving, and he was suddenly aware that some of the the things he might have taken for granted up to a certain point or the people that he would have taken for granted that they would be there up to a certain point are no longer there. 
he's not necessarily going to have the words or tools to explain, this is why I'm feeling, this is where my head's at, these are a problem. The most he might be able to do would literally be to say, here's all of this stuff, also, I need help. Help. Like, just help. Listen, it's, it's, it's hard not to think about Paul Jr. when you're looking at this, because... So many different people along the way have, uh, including friends of his, have ascribed his obsession with time running out to Paul Jr.'s death. And that it, it, I can't imagine it. I mean, I, I don't want to imagine it. You know, my brother's safe and sound, knock on wood. But, I mean, it starts off with a heartbeat, right? And what is a heartbeat? A heartbeat is our ticking clock. It starts with him in a hospital. And his brother made it to the hospital before he passed. He did. It's true. He didn't make it out. But when he when they when they he does the and it's a funny bit where he like turns the stethoscope around and it becomes a different heartbeat or something. I'm trying to remember. But a heartbeat is our ticking clock. Eventually, it's going to stop ticking. Mm-hmm. So at the end, it turns out he's the doctor. Yeah. And then he winks at us, which I found a little disconcerting. What I was fascinated by was, listen, we're used. We know he was a brilliant performer. But this was him for nine minutes starring in this film. Yeah. And no, he's not He's not doing any heavy lifting as an actor. He's mostly just walking from here to there. But he seems fairly effortless. He's funny. He handles the moments well. He doesn't look uncomfortable. To me, the biggest revelation coming out of Timepiece was just getting to see Jim Henson act. <laughs> the only other time I've seen him do any sort of acting... On screen, he had a cameo in Into the Night randomly. Yeah, this was just, I don't know. I mean, it's, again, for me, it's hard to describe because it is so about the sounds and the cuts and the rhythm and the music and the, but I can see if this was a more popular thing, if this was something that like everybody had seen, I could say, I could tell you which filmmakers had ripped it off their entire lives. But I'm not sure Edgar Wright has ever seen this. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if he had. Think this? I guess I don't know enough about Timepiece to know if it was influential, but it certainly feels like it could have been. The funny thing about it is, like, I I went to school for writing. Storytelling is very important to me. This is one of the first shorts I've seen that has actually made me want to make a quote-unquote film. And it would be a short. I wouldn't necessarily want to do a full-length one. But seeing the way that the medium is sort of folded into... It feels weird to call it a narrative, but it is. Like, there's there's a plot progression there of is, sorts. There is. I mean, you, you go you go through the... I mean, he ends up running through a graveyard in a tuxedo, and... Oh. I mean, there's definitely a, a hospital and life and death, and, I mean, there's all sorts of... You know, there's definitely... It definitely progresses through a story. As someone who went to film school and has made short films, uh, most of them are terrible. <laughs> I and it. i mean your short film should never be more than 10 minutes long to me like a, a bad 15 minute short film seems like a longer sit than a good three hour movie mm. uh, i have i've gone to many film festivals when my film was out i went to a lot of festivals i would go to the short film programs you'd meet the short film filmmakers and they're very passionate about what they do every once in a while you hit one and you're like yeah that was really interesting or fascinating but most of the time, it's just 15. It's like a, a, a they, they don't take advantage of what you're talking about. They don't take advantage of the fact that they have this short amount of time to do something special. They just try to tell a story in the same way a movie would. Mm-hmm. They just tell a lot less story. And it becomes every short film in college is the same thing. They all have punchlines. They're all jokes. Whether it's a comedic punchline or not, it's always you get to the end. and It's like, oh, OK. All right. 
that's what this was because that's the the structure that's set up for short films this doesn't really have that this is has a clear vision from start to finish mm-hmm. um if if i had made this in film school i would be a god now if for someone who has never done this before he had played with animation of course at home and he had made plenty of stuff but for someone to sit back and especially the way he made this i mean we barely talked about that where he's putting it together he had all these storyboards but he's out there you know dragging poor frank and jerry around the united states following rolf and jimmy dean so to piece it together to have the vision to see it i mean i'm sure a lot of it was made in the editing room but to see, to have this vision of it and put it together the way he did and it just to be so i didn't expect it to be so confident and coherent yeah thinking about it as being this early short film i was ready for it to be anything and to like it i was ready for it to be anything and to forgive it for its you know its inadequacies or its amateurism you know like you're, you're you know you go okay this be, it sounds cool it's really solid though it's a great piece of work <laughs> it's a legitimate great piece of work probably my favorite thing we've watched so far it's definitely up there for me oh during this time on the road with dean jane had given birth to the henson's first son brian and jim had also added a new member to his work family 31 year old jerry nelson a native oklahoman who had tried his hand at both soldiering and acting before he fell into puppetry working for the great bill baird a master puppeteer who we probably should have at least mentioned on the podcast by now it was through baird that nelson met bobby payne Henson's old friend and sometimes employee, who suggested that Nelson would be a good match for Jim. Jerry was sweet and funny, with a wonderful singing voice. At that point, pretty much every Muppet had been voiced by Henson. Jewel had done a few, but he was moving away from performing, and Frank Oz had sworn he would never use his voice for any of the characters. Jerry was just what he needed. Jim hired him, but only part-time. His first work would be on a series of ads for Southern Bread that featured a live hand puppet Southern Colonel, which, yes, seems a little in poor taste looking back on it. All this time, Muppets Inc. was doing quite well making commercials. For LeChoy, they made their first full-sized walk-around Muppet, Delbert, a tall dragon that breathed fire to convince you to buy LeChoy noodles. Despite Don Celine's innovation in building Delbert, It wasn't exactly an easy puppet to operate. Jim sized up the suit, imagined how miserable it was going to be inside of there, and immediately gave the job to Frank Oz. Sunday night supper and I don't feel like cooking. Wait! May I make a suggestion? Good heavens, there's a dragon in my kitchen. I'm the LaChoy dragon, and may I recommend... LaChoy chow mein! How did a dragon get in my kitchen? LaChoy chow mein is crisp, never mushy. As good as the takeout kind. That's because it's quick cooked by me in dragon fire. They were also hired to make four short coffee break films for IBM. Little funny pieces they could show to their employees in between the boring presentations at corporate meetings. It was during that process that Jim met IBM executive David Laser, who admired Jim, appreciated the way he worked, and came to really enjoy just being around the man. Remember that name, David Laser. It will come back. Shouldn't be too hard. The dude's name is Laser. That year, the Jimmy Dean show ended its three-year run. Frank Oz had taken some vacation time, so on the final episode, Jerry Nelson acted Rolf's right paw. The country star would have a long and profitable career selling processed meats. And on the Ed Sullivan show in 1967... He and Rolf got to exchange a few final one-liners. 
Jimmy. It's good to see you again. And it's good to see you. Hey, hey, you know, I got some great country jokes that I wrote here for the Ed Sullivan Show. What? Yes, yes. And, and it's all about, you know, how I was raised with a bunch of cows. Not a bunch. Herd. Herd of what? Herd of cows. Sure I heard of cows. No, no, I mean cows herd. I don't care if the cows hurt. I haven't said anything to be ashamed of. Right. Herd. H-E-A-R-D. Jimmy, you gotta milk these jokes. Milk them. Milk them? They're the worst jokes I ever heard. Is that H-E-R-D or H-E-A-R-D? Never mind that. Just forget that. Talk shows became a regular occurrence for the Muppets. During the Sam and Friends days, they had done Steve Allen and Jack Parr. But in 1966, they became regular guests on Ed Sullivan, and did a few appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, although, as Jerry Jewell later noted, Carson was not one of those people comfortable talking to the puppets. Back in 1965... John Stone and Tom Whedon were veteran television writers who had been struggling to find work. Two years before, they had drunkenly quit the Captain Kangaroo show after a blowout with the show's producer and star, the captain himself, Bob Keyshawn. Since then, they had tried to move out of children's programming to make the move as writing partners of more mature material, but no one was biting. But when they came to the shockingly young 25-year-old CBS executive Fred Silverman with an idea for a kid's show based on Snow White, he was interested. One of Stone and Whedon's ideas was that unlike that other Snow White, this one would feature seven woodland creatures, not dwarves, and they would be played by puppets. Puppets, Silverman thought? He knew the guy. We are going to meet with Christ and his dog, Silverman told them. The Jimmy Dean show was still in full swing, and Rolf the Dog was one of the most famous people on TV. The Muppets were still remarkably busy with commercials and were making talk show appearances nearly every week. Despite this schedule, Henson agreed to meet with Stone and Whedon as a favor to Silverman. He listened to the two men pitch their show, then, after making a few suggestions on the design of the puppets, agreed to do it. Whedon, son of John and father of Joss, Jed, and Zack, all of them successful TV writers, brought in a friend of his from Harvard, a young pianist and songwriter, Joe Raposo, to write some original songs for the production. The show really seemed to be coming together. And just as quickly, it fell apart. Snow White died before it put a single frame to film. Like most ideas in Hollywood, the three men took the show to another network, who wanted it, but with one caveat, lose Snow White. So they swapped one, not technically copywritten princess, for another. What about Cinderella? This time, they even took a shot at a pilot, with everyone aboard. Jim, Frank, Jerry Nelson, and Joe Raposo. The network seemed to love it, until they didn't. The pilot never aired. It had gotten farther than Snow White, but this wasn't horseshoes or hand grenades. Three years later, with even more success under his belt, Henson came back to Stone and Whedon and asked them if they thought the old Cinderella pilot could be expanded to fill an hour. He wanted to adapt it into a television special, the first in a fairy tale anthology series that he was going to call Tales from Muppet Land. The special, Hey Cinderella, would sit on the shelf for two years before anyone ever saw it. Bella Stone, take an invitation. You are invited to a masked ball at the palace. Bring a present for the king. No, no, change that. Uh, why not bring a present for the king? No, no, change that. 
Why not bring a present for the king if you know what's good for you? Even though I wouldn't do anything to you if you didn't bring one, probably. Okay? And sign it, loads of love, your royal highness, and address it to occupy. Yes, your majesty. Hey, Cinderella, which does have puppets and is a much more, I guess we would say, traditional what you would think of as a, as a Muppet production. Absolutely. And I, I think a big part of that, especially given Jim's love of fairy tales and, and folk tales and things like that, that subversion that you would see in a Muppet thing added more depth than you would have expected from... I guess a lot of the shows that you would have seen are about fairy tales this time, and I'm thinking in particular of Disney movies, everyone on screen was a character. Yes. Yeah, we got we got Rufus back. Rufus from Rufus is uh, back. Land of the Tinker Dee. He doesn't get to talk anymore. King Oshkosh is not does not look like King Oshkosh. Or excuse me, Gosh. Gosh Bosh. Gosh Bosh. I'm gonna make that mistake at least three more times. And then Featherstone is kind of a Featherstone's kind of an evolution of the Prime Minister from Tales of Tinker Dee. Mm-hmm. But this is also, I think well, I guess Land of Tinkerty did this, but... The the people and the Muppets on at the same time? Coexisting to the point where King Goshposh's son is played by a human. Mm-hmm. And Cinderella is a human, but her stepsisters are puppets, yet her stepmother <laughs> is a human. And the fairy godmother's a human. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no line anymore. They just exist in this world together. and there's And, and this is going to be something that carries on later and one of the criticisms i do have of hey cinderella is i do believe the stuff with just the humans falls a little flat Mm -hmm. which happens i I think and you know it'll be a long time until we get to this but i think one of the things that made uh the muppet christmas carol work is a very strong performance by michael Caine, and you actually don't mind the time you spend with michael Caine, even if there are no muppets with him in this like especially when cinderella sings her song which apparently was left over from the original that's a joe raposo original uh, what's the song called? I've, if I Could Go Dancing, I think, which I definitely could have gone without. <laughs> if you watch this, and, and again, this was filmed in 1968. It didn't come out. It came out in Canada, actually, in 1969, and then didn't air in the U.S. until 1970 after a, uh, a certain children's television workshop program made the Muppets famous. It's technically the first time Kermit is called a frog. He actually plays a frog in it. He's kind of a self-hating frog. <laughs> At times, he's a little down on being a frog. I feel like he's mostly just resigned to being a frog. I don't know that he necessarily hates being a frog so much as he hates how frogs are treated. I personally know you, and I'm not stuck up. Yeah, but you're not a girl. I know I'm a frog. You don't have to keep reminding me. That's a that's a good point. He's it, Kermit is kind of a jerk in this, though. He's not the Kermit that we know. He's he's um, absolutely the Kermit we know. <laughs> he's a little he's he's pretty grumpy. I, I would say grumpy. that this is like Kermit working his way up the ladder in order to manage the Muppet Show. Kermit, like early right. in his career, before he's got any sort of clout. And to note, because of because of the timing, Sesame Street had already aired when this came out. He was already known as Kermit the Frog. Mm. from Sesame Street. So while this is technically the first time they made him a frog, it wasn't the moment where everybody found out he was a frog. <laughs> I imagine that if the show had gone on or if they'd had more than just Cinderella and if it had been an anthology format, which I think it was aiming at doing. I, I wasn't able to find anything about what the show would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the same way with Tinker D, you know, where we watched the pilot of Tinker D, both pilots of Tinker D, and we're like, I don't know what the show would have been. This was kind of the same for me. Like, Cinderella is a pretty 
self-contained story. I wasn't imagining it as uh, like the first as a part of an anthology. And the idea that we would go, say, from Cinderella to Red Riding Hood to, I don't think they would have done Bluebeard, but a, n- a number of other fairy tales and fables with Kermit the frog as the frog that was also in Cinderella and other things being the one recurring character as he just travels around and ends up in these particular things. He sort of did that on the storyteller and we'll get to that at a later date. But if you think of like uh, a comparative thing to what Shelley Duvall did, the integration of the storyteller into the story either is completely unaware and, or it's not self-aware and the storyteller isn't actually the storyteller, but just a viewpoint character that's going through these things. Or conversely, they exist outside of the story and sometimes lean on or break the fourth wall. One note, note that I did have just as a, as a writer and someone who's written television episodes is uh, I thought the act break jokes were a little anemic. I also wanted to point out, um, so the woman who plays Cinderella, Belinda Montgomery, this was like her second role. She was only 18. She went on to have a long career as like a TV day player. But I, I wanted to tell you about this one. Robin Ward, who played the prince, mm-hmm. was 25 when they shot this, so a little older. But before this, he was like a weatherman. So he spent a lot of his uh, career as a day player, actor, as a guest actor, playing like reporters and announcers and stuff. Mm-hmm. He narrated the 1985 to 1989 Twilight Zone. He really? was the narrator. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, which, because he's got, you know, apparently he's got kind of a cool voice. And then, oh, and the other big thing was that Joyce Gordon, who played the godmother, she's most famous now. She was the lunch lady in Billy Madison. <laughs> Have some more Joes. <laughs> this also is our first appearance of Splurge. Mm-hmm. The, which is, I, I think their first larger than life full bodied puppet, which would of course lead to Big Bird pretty soon. You know, they had done ones that were full sized, but this is the first one like I mean it's a good what half person taller than a real person? I think so, yeah. Which is kinda what Big Bird is. So I'm guessing it's kinda got the same architecture inside where the puppeteer has their hand over their head. Mm-hmm. controlling the head splurge would show up on ed sullivan but blue instead of purple he would show up a few times and other things he was never a huge character and the stepsisters if you listen to them were very obviously performed by frank oz and jerry nelson if you listen to their voices they sound like miss piggy and emmett otter on helium <laughs> it, it's very clear yeah i see i didn't enjoy this as much as you did i liked it like i said i just the the, the stuff with the humans just killed me it just dragged it down for me it was my least favorite of the the main three things that we watched this week which isn't to say that i didn't enjoy it but i maybe i just have a soft spot for some of the tropes that were present they did subvert a lot of fairy tale i don't want to call them yeah they're fairy tale tropes and there was more presence and more development there but in terms of the quality of the acting and things like that maybe i just gave it more of a pass i I don't know well i mean it's basically uh, i wrote down it's cinderella meets much ado about nothing with a little bit of aladdin like Mm -hmm. it 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 has the kind of typical cinderella setup i love the fact that king goshposh is always just like the nicest king in the world i mean in this he's probably more dictatorial than he is in other things Mm -hmm. but he's still pretty pretty nice for a monarch but in this, it had a um, the Cinderella story, but then it also had the mistaken identity story, right? With the prince where they meet and she thinks he's a gardener. That and was a clever the... touch, I think, especially with a meeting again at the... Because so much of the way that Cinderella... I think there's that famous uh, Vonnegut lecture where he was describing the story structure of Cinderella and how it was atypical for a lot of story structures. But so much of Cinderella is the build up to her meeting the prince on the night of the ball 
losing the shoe and him wondering what happened, but they subverted that a couple of times over. The way that they played with time in this was actually really entertaining because it's not resolved over the course of... This takes months to resolve. Kermit even says that. Ah, I could have solved this whole thing months ago, but who listens to a frog? So you've got the initial subversion of Cinderella and the prince meeting while the prince now has a hidden identity, which I don't think has been the case with the prince in most Cinderella adaptations. He's always very proud of the fact that he's the prince, whereas in this case, he's worried that if she knows that he's the prince, then she's only going to be attracted to him for his fame as opposed to... And again, that's a very fairy tale trope as well, right? The prince pretending to be a pauper. It is... But it's something atypical to Cinderella, like the specific Cinderella. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. It's not a Cinderella thing. It's not. It's it's part of the kind of it's kind of a mashup. So it's there's a a weird sort of double inversion there. And then Jim actually just says, we're going to do away with a glass slipper. Okay, how are we going to (laughs) resolve this without a glass slipper? Since she broke the glass slipper, since why wouldn't you break a glass slipper if it's made out of glass? Right. Right. She's got another glass slipper. We've already seeded the fact that her dog just keeps hiding things and forgetting where he hid things. So we're going to hide that other glass slipper because they want each other, but they don't know that they want each other. They're committed by the mistaken identity thing. And so he twists it a few times and it's still, it didn't run that long. I don't think maybe I'm misremembering the timestamp, but it's no, it's not. It's not. I mean, it, it's, it's very, uh, I agree with you. I want to know this whole concept came, well, not the whole concept, but yeah, it came from, from Tom Whedon and John Stone. I'll talk about it a little bit next week, but if you ever want to read about the night that they quit working for Captain Kangaroo, it's a doozy. <laughs> read the book Sunny Days. It talks about that night. So so it is their story. Yeah, I just I just don't know what... The, I think you're right. I think an anthology show would have been interesting. That also sounds expensive Yeah. for a program of that scale, that time, especially making... And now... Eventually, as we go forward, we're going to we're going to develop things like the Muppet Workshop that are going to be making new Muppets, new puppets, new characters for both Sesame Street and the Muppet Show daily. But they don't have that capacity yet. They're still using these old characters like Gosh Posh, like the sisters are or they're they're fine, but they there's nothing especially memorable about how they're how they're built. Uh, the, yeah, the design definitely picks up. Splur, what did I, I wrote here? Oh, Splurge Ex Machina is what I wrote on here. Because I think he kind of comes in the end and saves the day. Out of context, never mind. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just remember, and, and I also wrote down a line that I really liked. A beautiful Splurge drawn coach that Kermit describes, which I thought was kind of cute. Yeah, it's got music by Joe Raposo, who we'll hear a lot uh, about next episode. Some of it I didn't care for, like the the song. But there was some music in it that, I don't even know how to explain it. It was kind of background music, but it's got vocals in it, but they're sung real lightly. Mm. And there is some stuff like that in early seasons of Sesame Street. I I could hear at times I heard the Joe Raposo that was going to become the composer for Sesame Street. I did Mm. hear that every once in a while, but I didn't think it was as consistent. I think the, the humans acquit themselves well. I just don't think... And maybe it's just a contrast. The Muppets are so much fun. <laughs> it could also be early installment weirdness, because especially if the actors themselves aren't used to acting with Muppets or without. And it's just a pilot as well. Mm-hmm. And again, this is her second role. You know, she's 18 years old. He is very early. And everyone in this, most people in this, are very early in their career. And I don't think they did bad, necessarily. I just, I just felt that the... 
again, maybe I was just I was just wanting more Kermit, or I was just wanting more Muppets to be in the scene. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. This is the first of the Tales from Muppet Land series. Um, there are what two more entries? I think that are technically Tales from Muppet Land that we will be talking about in coming weeks. One important thing to remember from Hey Cinderella, and I personally think the most important thing about Hey Cinderella is the name John Stone. Uh, we're going to talk about him a lot next episode. This moment here, this is the moment where they met. And what we're kind of watching happen is that we're, as, as I've talked about before, we're watching the pieces of his team fall into play, but we're also watching, there's a little bit of alchemy happening here with the animation in timepiece and with some of the personnel on this. Yeah. Again, we've already said it, so it's no spoilers. Next week is Sesame Street. And I can actually, when I'm watching this stuff, I can see Sesame Street coming. I can I see can, that with the animations segments and uh, timepiece and it, John Stone's involvement in this, and some of the humor is very Sesame Street in this. Yeah, specifically the human to, uh, to Muppet interactions too. One of the things I liked that they did, and I didn't think about it actively, but I I kind of prefer it. The prince had already known Kermit. So the Muppets weren't treated as something new. They're just part of the world. And you, you touched oh. on this earlier, but I'm going to have a relationship with these people. And sure, they're different. And sure, there might be some slight racism against frogs. But the prince didn't have a problem. Yeah, it is a little racist towards frogs. It is. The king, the king does not like that frog. And, and there's never a reason given for it either. He's just like, you've been hanging out with that frog again. Yeah, I, will, will, I, I did like he invites everyone in the kingdom to the ball. Better take a PS to that invitation. Yes, sire. P.S. No frog. And then he starts to reconsider uh, that. I <laughs> think that maybe he should have been more specific. When Splurge brings all of his like high school buddies with him. Yeah. It's it's an early, I don't know, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of an early classic Muppets piece, though. Mm -hmm. I believe it was, a, I, I remember having a VHS copy of it at one point. So it was something that was, was available much more commercially throughout the years. I don't think it's in print right now. I, this was my first time seeing it. Yeah, but I, I remember, like, the VHS clamshell case of it. The next thing we're going to talk about is a lot harder to find and does not come in a colorful VHS clamshell. If Hey Cinderella seems a little safe and lukewarm to you, and you're not wrong, it totally is, don't worry, Jim hadn't forgotten about his more avant-garde aspirations. I said in our first episode that running off to Europe to learn how to paint may have been the most pretentious thing that Jim Henson had ever done. I retract that statement. I had forgotten all about Club Cyclia. Nick, what in the hell is a Club Cyclia? Okay, so for us to, to really explain Club Cyclia, we have to make sure that a couple of things are very clear in context. First, this is 1967. This is pre-disco right? Nightclubs didn't exist in the same way. Jim went to a Jefferson Airplane show, and he was really, really impressed by a lot of the lights and effects that they created. And he wanted to create, I guess, what he thought of as a full entertainment experience. So he envisioned a space where you would have a number of different reflective surfaces on the floor, on the walls, on the ceiling, at some point over the course of each hour, a woman would come out in reflective clothing and they would reflect all sorts of different scenes off of her and all the things around them as music played. The The floor and ceiling itself would be broken into these sort of faceted crystal-like shapes, uh, which would become more common in nightclubs later on, especially during the 70s into the, the early 80s. But they wanted 
the the objective of Cogpsychia was a sort of full immersion, um, which it tracks, right? Jim was also very, very big on using the frames of the television as the barriers for whatever storytelling he was trying to do. This seemed like it would be the next logical step, if you can call it that. Again, this is pre-disco, so they had a lot of difficulty finding a location that would be able to support the effort. And they started filming a bunch of clips for it. Uh, the filming started in 65, two years before they really started to get into it. They got footage from a Beatles concert in 65 in Shea Stadium. Frank Oz, in particular, went through thousands of feet of 16-millimeter footage for Club Cyclia. It's another Henson project that didn't quite get off the ground, though that's only because it was ahead of its time. In 1968, NBC started airing a series called NBC's Experiment in Television, a program that would promote experimental and avant-garde filmmaking, which, by the way, sounds awesome because there's no way a network would do that today. After years of studios rejecting Henson's more out-there ideas, this was a chance for him to stretch his legs and once again be that experimental filmmaker he saw himself as. He would end up making two programs for experiment in television. The first was called Youth 68, Everything's Changing or Maybe It Isn't. Yes, that's the whole title, and it would make Fiona Apple proud. It was a documentary of sorts, but far more of an impressionistic collage than your average 60-minute segment. It was directed by John Stone, who was not as shy with his political opinions as Jim was. Time Magazine described it as a visual and sound montage juxtaposing outspoken opinions on love, religion, drugs, and war with the sights and sounds of popular dance. Which is pretty accurate. It interviews young people young adults mostly, not children, about what it's like to be a youth in 1968 in the wake of the famous 67 Summer of Love. It talks to average college students, hippies, psychologists, and members of Jefferson Airplane and the Mamas and the Papas. I think this age is challenging us as a youth. We have our duties to do, and I think we can do them. The kids today just want something for themselves, something they can grab onto and hold onto and say it's theirs. And the kids want to be free, man, like, that's where it's ahead. Well, youth is always an exciting time. Well, it's certainly more exciting than it ever was before. Yeah, sure, it's always more exciting than what? A two-and-a-half-minute clip of Youth 68 is on the Jim Henson Company's YouTube page. The whole thing is available for viewing at the Museum of Television and Radio. We plan on getting there soon, COVID willing, so we can come back with a full report. The pieces with the young people aren't exactly interviews, they're sound bites, presumably taken from longer conversations, chained together with music by Bob Dylan and The Who, and some groovy special effects. But apparently it does have a strong anti-war message, and kind of a bummer ending. But until we can see it in its entirety, it's hard to have opinions that we don't steal from someone else. Although, Marty Ballin of Jefferson Airplane makes a 
few good points while waving around what one must assume is a loaded pistol. I think this generation realizes that uh, they're the generation who's going to really have to, uh, you know, do an Oedipus on their fathers and just uh, take over and really make it work, you know, because everybody else before us had been saying this and saying that, and nobody's ever done it. Youth 68 aired in April and was generally well-received, appreciated for both its innovation and its content. It wasn't without controversy, as some Americans objected to many of the subject's messages, but that's what happens when you stick it to the man, man. NBC was pleased with Youth 68, and had no reservations producing and airing Jim's next entry in Experiment in Television, a piece that he and Jerry Jewell had been unsuccessfully shopping around for years. It's time to talk about the cube. This is weird. Hello. Can anyone hear me? <laughs> what, what is this, a joke? All right, come on, let me out of here. This is weird. Where do I begin with the cube? Yeah, exactly. That's that's what the guy in the cube thinks. Well, <laughs> it's a closed loop. Or an infinite yeah. loop, which is fascinating because it keeps coming back to... Well, let's set it up first. Let's, oh, okay, let's sorry. Quick, Quickly set it up. Cube was the movie that he did the next year for it. It was written by him and Jerry Jewell yet again. It was originally written in 1966, but they you know brushed it off for, for, um, for this. It's, written, it's uh, directed and produced by Jim, and it, it's about a guy in a white cube. It has been compared to now. This is the one bit of controversy about about the cube, is that it is believed to have been inspired by slash ripped off from a short story called The Squirrel Cage by Thomas Dish, and it's in his short story short story collection called Fun with Your New Head, which I like. Mm. I couldn't find the story to read online, so me being me, I ordered a paperback of it, but it hasn't come yet. Yeah, I've never read that one. People just think that maybe. Hey, it's Chad here. I got my copy of Thomas M. Dish's Fun with Your New Head compilation of short stories, and I read The Squirrel Cage. Other than it taking place inside of a, a white cube, uh, and, and, and starring a man that doesn't know why he's in that cube. There's no other similarities. But you should definitely check out the story. It's very good. I, I really liked it. I'm probably going to go back and read the rest of it. But it's more uh, introspective. There's no other characters in it, unlike the cube. To me, it's about the peril of being left alone with your own thoughts and only your own thoughts all the time without the distractions that... Uh, keep our mind off of the heavy stuff which for someone like me at least is terrifying but it's not it's not the it's not the same thing so a guy um we don't see him waking up but a guy is in a white cube he doesn't know why he's there and he doesn't know how to get out but he also doesn't seem too distraught at first over it like he seems to take it in stride that he's stuck in this white cube at least for a while there's there's a level of disorientation, and I think one of the things that I would want to draw attention to first is this is about a 52-minute uh, yeah. movie. Pro it probably took about an hour and a half on television with commercials. This concept seems like something that you would maybe get through in a 15-minute short. Like, this is this is the kind of thing that you'd see parody in, in commercials or other short-form things, but it keeps going. And the funny thing about it is... The entire point of it is to sort of unmoor this guy's sense of reality. And he's never, or he's given a name, but it's never his name. And he, 
he never, he does and doesn't assert a very strong sense of self. Toward the end, he does start yeah. calling everyone on their stuff and being like, I know you guys are messing with me, but I don't know what's going on. But he, there's never a name. There's never any indication of what his life was like before he was in the cube. He only knows that he's stuck in there and he wants to get out. And yet he doesn't want to get out at the same time. There, There's like, there's a little bit of the parable of the cave in here too. You know, it, it, he keeps getting visited by this procession of people. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I mean, a, a lot of visits from Arnie, who's the telephone. He's like the handyman, I guess. It's the Peter Robert De Niro in Brazil <laughs> figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's coming. Uh, he's there to fix the. He's there to fix the ducks. And uh, it starts. It stars a guy named Richard Shaw. Had a pretty decent career. He was in George Roy Hill's version of uh, Slaughterhouse Five. His movie version of Slaughterhouse Five in '72. And he did like episodes of like the Dukes of Hazard and the Rockford Files. And he did five episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which is pretty great because that's an amazing show. Most of the other actors, you know, some of them have day playing careers and stuff. Did you notice that the monk, however, is played by Jerry Nelson? I did not. That's great. Very young Jerry Nelson playing the monk. The one thing I I did write down is a paranoid piece for a paranoid time. I don't know why. That's just what came to me. Like, the cube is downright epistemological. There's there's a section where... I think he breaks one of the tiles. So the the cube itself, I, we should probably describe what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. I realize, yeah, yeah. It's it's basically a it's a padded room. Like you've got yeah. a bunch of different yeah. squares. Sometimes they open to reveal cabinets, or people will just open a segment of them and walk in or walk out. And yeah. one of the things that's repeated very early on is this is the way. I, this is doors for me. It's not for you. This is not your door. Yeah. And in order to get out of here, you need to find your door. Everything. Basically, out of the gate, is there to undermine his sense of what he would be able to take for granted or what what is actually real or how he knows what's real. There's a a segment where another guy breaks into the room, seeming like he's escaped from... The prisoner. The prisoner, yeah. Seeming like he's escaped from his own room, but his cell had squares, whereas the current guy's has rectangles, and that's making him very uncomfortable. And he's been stuck in there for a long time. But he's he's finally made his way out, but maybe he should go back in, and then he leaves, and one of the guys that seems to have a, a supervisor role comes in and asks if he met anyone else, and the lead guy says, no, I haven't met anyone, because obviously, if something weird is going on, he's not going to talk to him about it. He's like, I'm sure someone did, and he brings the guy that had just broke in into the room and ex- and explains that he's actually a very good actor. Jack Van Evera. He, call, it's Jack, he calls him Jack Van Evera, which is the actor's real name. The actor is playing himself. That's, I, I didn't catch that, but that's a great yeah. touch. There's another section where a woman is in the room and she's expressing attraction to the guy, which he doesn't believe at first, and then he starts to believe it, and then a bunch of other people come in, and she's talking to one of her friends and saying, I lost that coin flip. I really wish I hadn't had to get together with this guy. Um, next time, yeah. I'm going to be the one that comes in. And she spent so much time before that trying to get him to trust her because that was the role that she was supposed to play. <laughs> have you ever seen the game, the David Fincher movie, the game? I have not. It was David Fincher's follow up to seven. Hmm. And uh, there were some things in here that uh, reminded me also a little, there's a little, I don't know, a little Truman show to it. They seem aware, or at least at times they're aware they're on a television program. Well, that's just it though, is it doesn't seem like they are. There's a, there's that segment where the, the tile is broken and you just see this weird sort of, red undulating yeah yeah it's like this red undulating mass outside like was he kidnapped by aliens is he did he die there was there was the repeating question of like whether or not he died and this is just what came afterward and there's this also this repeating thing where 
furniture will suddenly show up in the cube. Like it kind of gives him what he wants and when he want at times, right? When he thinks of something or when he needs something, it appears. He does call the shot when the gorillas come in with two twos. And that that was a really nice touch too, because we're all expecting it to happen. But the way that we're seeing it, it's like you're telling them what's going to come in and happen to you because it seems like something way off the cuff. And then right before the guy leaves, he's like, you're getting better at predicting what this does. But you don't even trust him when he says that because everyone in their lies, every single person lies. They do. And uh, uh, including how could we forget, of course, the uh, the the 60s garage band. Mm-hmm. You'll never get out. I wanted to, but I want to talk about some more, but I don't want to forget this. When it, after it aired, it, it got more mixed reviews than uh, Youth 68 did. But I want to read, there was a letter that they received, that NBC received from uh, 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 Mr. Dion, Mr. Dion um, from California. And this is the letter he wrote. The most disciplined attention I could give the cube was a belch from the grave of Marcus Aurelius, occasioned, I might add. By the dead weight of its own caving in on itself. That was his response to the cube. That's an interesting take. Jim wrote back, Dear Mr. Dion, what the fuck are you talking about? Yours truly, <laughs> yours truly, Jim Henson. Pardon Jim's French. Part, Jim was not a man who swore a lot, not at home, sometimes at work, mm-hmm. but not, you know, with like with the guys, because I think, I think uh, Frank Oz, you know, swears up a blue streak. You know, I, I, I kind of, I see, I went more literal. I wrote down like, oh, this person comes in, this person comes in. Uh, I did, I did notice that the, the moment where the guy says, well, we're on TV. Let me show you the ending of it. Mm-hmm. And he brings out the TV and shows them the end of the special, even though it's not the end of the special. Mm-hmm. Reminded me of Spaceballs a little bit. <laughs> the prisoner was my favorite, was my favorite part. Cause he had some really great stuff. The whole stuff about, you know, you and your rectangles. He wants to escape, but he doesn't know life outside of his cube. There's a lot going. There is a lot going on in this thing, and I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm 100 percent smart enough to figure it all out. I don't know. It's it's intriguing though, because you've it is you basically got like there's a I'm gonna mispronounce. I was never a Star Trek fan, but I guess there's a character in the Next Generation, which is just this super advanced being that sometimes comes down to the Enterprise. Q. 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 His yeah. name's Q. Yeah. The character from the DCU, I think it's Mizzleplix. Mr. Mizzleplix. Yeah, Mr. Mizzleplix. These characters that are very, very powerful, but also just sort of interested in having fun or screwing with people. Yeah, kind of trickster, trickster characters. Yeah. Yeah, the entire ensemble of people that are moving in and out of the cube are a collective trickster. The bit with the chocolate rabbits and all the other non sequiturs. It's all very, very nice, but I think the thing that did cinch it for me, or the two things that cinched it for me were the instant apparition of the furniture and the breaking of the the frame that showed, like, the sort of maelstrom outside. It's whatever it is that's going on to tie it back to timepiece a little bit. These are all things that are completely beyond the main character's control, and he's grasping for control. He's trying to make sense of it. But the weirdest thing, too, is he leaves the cube exactly once. Thinks. Yes, he, he 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 finds his door. He finally 
decides what his door is. And there's almost this suggestion that if he would just commit to leaving, he would be okay. Yeah, because there are several times where he asks about leaving and they go, you can leave. He doesn't even attempt to, really. Because he's he's expecting the other shoe to fall, sort of like it did with the, the gorillas and the tutus. I thought it was a funny bit when the, like, the interior decorator came in. Oh, yeah. And, and she's trying to figure out what color the cube should be. I think tangerine. Tangerine is just the right color for you. One bucket of tangerine coming up. <sighs> tangerine is one of my favorite colors. Tangerine is the color of ripe, rich fruit. Of course, you can't look at tangerine all the time. Say, how many hours a day do you spend in here, anyhow? Good heavens, he can't spend the rest of his... Well, I mean, you can't look at tangerine all the time. <laughs> Maybe we'll go white. And, uh, oh, yeah, speaking of which, and then there's like a, a black militant shows up. That was, I thought. that was an interesting touch. How you like it? Like what? How you like your place here? I don't. Well, I don't see why not. It's very well made. It costs a lot of money to make a place like this. Nice walls. Good lighting. Well constructed. It's a terrible place. Oh, now. You don't like it in here? I think this is a wonderful place. But you ought to feel nice and safe, well protected in here. You know, there's only one thing about this place I really don't care for. What's that? It's white. This is 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're in the full swing of Vietnam. We're in the full swing of we're we're in the wake of uh, MLK's assassination. You know these are these are while we don't think of Henson as a political guy, I don't think there's any way you're making stuff like this at this time. It isn't reflecting the political world mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, I mean, I was writing down just all the people that came and visited him. It's like it was, he he gets like thirty different visits or something like that. I through the whole thing. You had two big party scenes too, and I couldn't keep track of who was a repeat occurrence versus just who would have been yeah. new. Yeah, they brought a. I, yeah, I think some people came back for those. I mean, but then there's like there's a funeral. He tries to kill himself. That was yeah. That's why I was like, this is probably one of Henson's darker things because they make fun of him after he fails. <laughs> Spoilers for the game, for the Michael Douglas movie, The Game, uh, but it came out like 30 years ago. I can't do math anymore. It's like 1998. Is that uh, Michael Douglas is, for his birthday, his brother has bought him this experience where basically he gets involved in intrigue and drama and a woman and all that stuff. Kind of like a, kind of like a, um, like someone would play like a, a dinner, mur- like a murder mystery game for dinner. Oh, it's almost like role playing, right? But he mm-hmm. doesn't know it's a game or he thinks it's a game, but then it gets so deadly. He doesn't really think it's a game. It's a alternate reality gaming. You know, he's meeting these people and he doesn't know if he can trust them, but then eventually he buys into it. And the climax of the movie is he tries to kill himself. He jumps off of a building and uh, again, I'm spoiling it, but whatever. He jumps off of a building and he lands on a giant like air mattress and they deflate it and everyone's there and they all cheer. Ex- exact same thing. They celebrate like you got to the end. <laughs> you got to the end. Well, I don't know who you are or what you are, but I'll tell you something. I've had it. 
I'm sick of your funny little jokes, your games. I've had it with your gorillas, your intellectual hogwash, your priests, your... your chocolate rabbits. I am sick of people pretending to be one thing and changing into something else. And he's like, what the, you know, and it, so it, it reminded me very much of that, where where the goal seems to be to get the person to the point of not wanting to exist anymore and then going surprise. But it doesn't stop there is the thing is the it's relentless in what it does. He doesn't really get to rest. He doesn't. There's no like fade to black him waking up the next morning. It just goes like I, I think that band comes in as he's trying to get a moment's rest. He just there's. There's no break. There's no. There's a little bit of time for him to reflect, but not really because he he never gets to get his bearings. The rules keep changing. Yes, that's true. The rules keep changing on him. People keep it, and yeah, it never stops. As soon as one person leaves, the next person comes in. It said it's very. The performance by Shawl is very strange to me because I like it, but it's strange because he seems nonplussed, but he doesn't seem like I would be freaking out. <laughs> I would be scream. I would I, be screaming. What is happening? Why am I here? He never really says that. He never really questions why he's in the cube. I think that part of that, like we we don't have a concept of who he was beforehand. Although in that situation, I would probably be trying to wait for someone to slip up and let me know something I'm not supposed to know. I don't know. I I was waiting, and I liked it. I liked the fact that he never. It led to kind of the surreal nature of it, and the cerebral nature of it. That he never. He never screamed, why am I here? He's more uh, Arthur Dent than Charles. Yeah, he wants to get out. And I don't know, He's he, he has to play this, Shaw has to play this combination of befuddled and, uh, I was going to say befuddled and confused, but that's pretty much the same thing. Um, but befuddled and curious as well, trying to figure out what's going on, inquisitive, but also by the end, he's very exasperated by it all it seems exhausting mm -hmm. it's a very it's a very interesting performance and a very interesting character for someone who really doesn't have a character he played it well for he's, sure i mean he's intentionally blank though he's given a name once by a woman that he says but he says that's not his name and that that's not his wife there is something really curious about there's a scene early in it where he's delivered a phone and he keeps calling what i assume are different numbers but he keeps getting the guy that delivered the phone and saying that the phone's not working and part of me wonders who he's calling then and whether he's actually dialing different numbers or if he keeps dialing the same number and doesn't understand why it's not. Because at first, if you're thinking about it literally, he gets mm -hmm. this phone. He's like, great, you know, I can call out and get help. You know, I can call my wife. I can call my friend. I can call the police. And, and you're right. And he, he dials these numbers and we don't see what he dials. And he keeps getting Arnie, <laughs> the guy who installed the phone. Something wrong, pal? Yes, this telephone isn't working. What do you mean it isn't working? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, but that isn't what I got. Your phone's working. So long, pal. But as it goes on, you're right. I doubt less and less that he's, uh, yeah, you know, coming at it fresh, I was thinking like, oh, he's trying to find a way out. He's trying to call the cops or whatever. But upon reflecting and upon seeing the whole thing, I have no idea now what he was doing, you know, who he was mm -hmm. calling. Is there anyone for him to call? Yeah. The whole thing is just one big question. Mm -hmm. And uh, it definitely doesn't answer a whole lot, but it's not it's not trying to. It, it almost feels like it's in an infinite loop, though. It is, I think, because I think that the final sh even though the the space balls ending doesn't come true. The mm -hmm. final shot of the show, I believe, is also the first shot of the show. 
It's kind of, mm-hmm. um, or, or very close to it. But I mean, it ends with that kind of overhead shot of him just kind of pacing in the cube. And we have no idea how long he's been in the cube, whether it just happened. What, I don't know, but, it, but it, it starts off in the cube and it ends in the cube. And that's all we get. It was still very funny at times, but it is, it's also kind of terrifying. It's got a little Kafka to it, I think. Oh yeah. Like it's, I, the dark crystal scared me as a kid, but this is actually this, the cube reminds me of, uh, I have no mouth and I must scream. Yeah. See, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it's a it's a famous short story. It's one of the the classic examples of a fate worse than death because people are being slowly assimilated into this, I guess, computer brain that will keep them alive, but they won't be able to communicate with the out- outside world. They won't have any sort of control. So you're perpetually aware without being able to really do anything to affect your environment or anything like that. See, I I got that feeling from Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. Not familiar with that. He was a blacklisted writer, but he, he wrote like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Roman Holiday. He was a great Hollywood screenwriter, but he wrote a novel called Johnny mm-hmm. Got His Gun, which is a World War One novel about a guy who comes back with no arms and no legs and he can't speak. And the entire thing is from the point of view of this man who's basically just a torso and a head. And he's alive, but he has no ability to communicate or move or anything. And the entire story takes place in his head. And it's terrifying. It is that lack of control, right? I mean, the, the decision to kill himself is at least agency. Right. And he commits, but it doesn't stick. And No, they even they even take that away from him. They even take his death away from him, his suicide away from him. They're able to conjure barriers. Like, he can't interact with certain things as though there's a, an invisible wall there. And there's even a scene where you're close up on him like he is the regular self and then it pans out and you see the him that's observing what's going on but it's done in such a way that you realize or it makes it seem like he's coming back into himself as the illusory self oh, it's useless you know he's projected what, what do you mean projected well every one of us has a certain image we project to others right uh. well this is the image we project well, none of us are real. He's not real. We're all projected. I'm not projected. What did you say? I said I'm not projected. <laughs> I'm not projected. I'm, I am, I'm not projected. I'm projected. He's projected himself into the party. But there's, in terms of, I, I guess you'd call them the denizens of the cube, the access they have to this man is complete. Yeah. They've got access to his mind, his space, everything he would do. Like, it it could go full claymation horror movie if... Oh, it, it, start, it starts off like a Saw movie. Yeah. <laughs> it, it starts off does. like this could be a Saw film. You're probably wondering where you are. I'll tell you where you might be. You might be in the room that you die in. And that that complete lack of, I guess, boundary between yourself and the outside world is kind of terrifying because these people, while might not necessarily, while they might not necessarily be malevolent, are definitely not looking out for your best interests. They are terrifyingly benign, you know, <laughs> like it almost they're almost nefarious in how kind of accommodating they are to him. But they're also every single one of them in their own ways also taunting him by leaving by how freely they come and go. But even then, anything he would ask for, with the exception of being able to leave, even if they're accommodating him, there's always that sort of twist on it, like the literal genie thing where you didn't wish specifically enough. Yeah, the monkey's paw type of thing. Yeah, it's... it's 
we, I watched Time Peace first, and I thought, well, that'll be the weirdest thing we watched this week. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> and then I watched The Cube, and I said, never mind. Time Peace makes complete sense. And it is a very straightforward work of narrative fiction because the cube. It's a Mobius strip. It, it is def- definitely. It is the type of film that I usually don't like. They never stick for me. Isn't there a movie called Cube? I believe there was like a. There is. It's a horror movie. It's completely unrelated. I know, but it, isn't it yeah, kind of similar? Isn't it? They're just stuck in a cube, though, right? They're, I think that's the one where everyone, every character was named after a different prison. Okay. And they're trying to escape and it's booby trapped. And the name of the character or the prison the character is named after tells you something about their personality. So I think there's a guy named Quentin who's named after San Quentin, which is where a lot of more violent criminals yeah. go. That I don't think that was related to this so much at all i could be wrong maybe it was influenced by it it's just not the type of film i normally find films like this to be and i you know i'm a pretty sophisticated moviegoer to be pretty pretentious and i always i always come out of films like this feeling like they're not as deep as they think they are i don't think this one preaches anything though and i think that actually comes to its i I agree just on things it discusses things like if you were to tell me the premise of the cube and then tell me how long it was i would probably not be interested in watching it because I feel like the premise would be exhausted pretty early on. But it's a juggling act. Like, we're keeping balls in the air, and then we'll throw other stuff in there, and you're just waiting to see what's going to come down, and eventually maybe you get up to the point where you're juggling grenades and chainsaws. But it's still, it's never not juggling. Over the course of however long this show takes us to do, the word we will probably use the least will be boring. Yeah. You know, even when Henson wasn't firing on all cylinders his stuff moves, you know, I mean, maybe we mm-hmm. can talk about the dark crystal is, is a little bit of a slower burn, but even, even this piece that is, yeah, this very kind of opaque idea of this guy in a cube and all these people, it just, because of, because of the existence of all the people that you're talking about coming in and out, it just moves so fast and it doesn't get bogged down in the tedium of trying to figure it out, you know, in a feature length modern film you would have the character trying to figure it out and trying to you know like there's no time for that like you said he doesn't get a moment's rest he doesn't get a moment to think and so it's not about getting to the answers it's not a it's not a it's not it, it presents itself as a puzzle but it's not really there's no solution to it yeah it's more of a mental exercise than a puzzle Ex- exactly it's more of a what if right it's it's just here's a guy in a cube <laughs> you know what if you woke up one day and you were a cockroach and here's a guy in a cube and <laughs> Yeah, and it and it's very similar. It's just uh, you have to go with, like you said, a mental. You have to go with the exercise instead of I think my modern brain or my more literal brain. At first, my first viewing, I watched it three times. My more literal brain on the first viewing was trying to figure it out. I think that's what you're supposed to do, though. Like, not necessarily that you're supposed to succeed. Yeah, but I think you're supposed to attempt because that's you engaging with the material. There were a few. There were a few things in there where I felt like they throw them in just to be weird, like the chocolate bunnies. A, I think you're right, but B, from, I guess, a metatextual context, it does, like, so much of the thing runs on a subversion of expectation, but everything is still set up. Oh, it's it's well thought out. It's not that they, you know, they definitely didn't slap it together. I mean, they, they had yeah. a plan. They probably knew when they made it. Again, this was for a show called Experiment in Television. Many times throughout the episode references television. Yes. And even says at one point, he's like, you can just turn it off. Like, the the guy, when, 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 um... He's watching uh, uh, Spaceballs, the videotape, and he's seeing the end of the movie. 
the guy says is like, well, if you don't like it, you can just turn it off. And it's almost like Henson looking at the TV audience going like, listen, if you're not digging this, it's okay. Something really interesting there too, because there's, it's presented as though he's getting this happy ending. And then he realizes that it's not the happy ending. And I think, did he, did he run toward the screen? At the end? No, no. During the space pulse thing, because the him inside of the TV recognized that he was getting what would nominally be a, a Hollywood happy ending. And then as it proceeds, he's like, wait, this isn't my happy ending. I'm not happy about this at all. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed then. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. When will then be now? Soon. Yeah, he's with like a woman. This is ridiculous. How can I see something that hasn't even happened yet? Here's the picture now. This is just the last part of the program. Hey, that's me in there. Of course. But I'm still in the queue. Of course you're in the queue, but you're healthy and happy. <laughs> see, you even got the girl in the end. The perfect storybook ending. Wait. Wait, this is not a happy ending. I don't want this girl. Wait. Well, we don't Hold need on. the sound. Uh, uh, <laughs> If I were you, I'd be very pleased with that ending. You know, let's not forget that, yes, this was a television show and a TV is the shape of a cube. So you can even take, you know, the, you could also just say the cube is the TV. <laughs> you know, like, like he can't get out. He's trapped in the television. and He can't get out. So there's there's a lot of different ways to read it. And uh, obviously that's on purpose, but I, I did enjoy it a bit, I, uh, quite a bit. I watched it three times. I can't tell you at the end of the third time that I like, you know, Eureka, I solved it because I, I really believe that's not there. I, <laughs> I really I am just saying I don't think there's a something to solve. I think if there is, it might be that there's nothing to solve, which sounds yeah. like a cop out. But no, no, it's uh the, the answer is there's no answer. There is an answer in that it is, or there's only one rule. There are no rules. Yeah, no. A great thing. If you can find, it's a little harder to find, but uh, if you can, I would definitely check it out. Absolutely worth a watch. It's definitely worth a watch. It's some cool stuff. In 1968, Muppets Incorporated changed its name to Henson Associates. This conveniently made the company's acronym HA or HA, which Jim found particularly amusing, especially if you added an exclamation point at the end of it. But it also sent a message. Henson Associates weren't just the Muppets. They could do more. And in 1968 and 1969, Henson was going to prove that. I find these years in Henson's career to be fascinating. This period, let's say 63 to 69, you don't see an artist struggling with two sides of his identity, but instead one attempting to live both at the same time. I don't do a Henson impression, but I think it's important to hear his exact words on this, so I'm going to quote him. In those days, I used to think in terms of having two careers going, two threads I was working on at the same time. One was accepted by the audience and was successful, and that was The Muppets. The other was something I was very interested in and enjoyed very much, but it didn't have any commercial success, which didn't bother me because I got so much pleasure from working on those non-commercial projects. I thought of myself as an experimental filmmaker back then. These first 15 years of Jim's career are underwritten by that significant dichotomy. Was he an experimental visual artist, content with showing his films in museums and not theaters? Or was he the puppet guy? entertaining, 
and earning millions, making people happy all over the world. He wanted to be both. He didn't want to decide. The rest of 1969 would decide for him. Next week, Sweet Air and Sunny Days. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of... Antithesis Audio.